and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Todd, and today I'm here with Percival. Hi. And Nick. Hey there. This week, we're here to talk about fiction-forward games and crunchy games, and what those distinctions are, and whether that might actually be a false binary. Uh, so I would define a fiction-first or narrative-focused game as a game that defines itself as a direct conversation between the GM and the players, uh, and it is focused first and foremost on the building of story together, maybe the development of character relationships, you know, figuring out what happens to this group of people as they go through the story of the game. But it is what it is trying to do as a game is tell a story, and the mechanics are all sort of there to serve the telling of that story, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of times when you see these fiction forward games, I think I just either invented or pulled in a new term. Um, but in, in these fiction forward games, a lot of times you see that they're uh, lighter on rules than um, the so-called crunchy games. And I think that's really because, like you were saying, Percy, they are aiming to tell a story and they're aiming to give a sort of very lightweight framework to allow the group to tell whatever story that they want. Um, and finally, when they use the word fiction, I specifically define fiction in the term fiction first or fiction forward as the shared imagined universe that the game is happening inside. Hence, fiction first means we're operating in character, we're operating in the shared imagined universe, unless something happens that requires mediation by uh, dice. And so like, for examples, we have a lot of different PBTA games, um, whether that's something like maybe blades but we'll discuss that later um uh, or apocalypse world uh, masks is definitely fiction first fiction forward yes um another example is a game that i mentioned i think in our intro episode for blades in the dark which is lady blackbird which is another john harper game and that i think is a good example of the relationship between fiction and mechanics in this style of game because uh in in lady blackbird they have these things called keys which are essentially like cues for how you role play your character and I think that is a good example of a mechanic serving the purpose of telling you as a character, OK, this is who you have relationships with and how you might play those relationships out. I think one thing we see very often in these games is nebulously defined consequences. For example, with uh, Blades in the Dark, when something goes wrong, there, there's nowhere in the book that tells you, like, this is what a consequence is if you attempted to do X and you failed. Uh, it's just sort of left up to the flexibility of the party to decide, OK, in this situation, what does a quote unquote bad consequence look like um, to let you play kind of fully within that fiction? Mm -hmm. I've been reading the Masks Handbook lately, and one of the things that I really loved was describing sometimes a, a negative consequence can be giving your player exactly what they wanted in the worst way possible. Mm -hmm. um, so like they absolutely achieve their goal and it's terrible as opposed to like you failed to do X or you uh, tried to do Y, but this other thing happened. And I think that that's really interesting. Um, whereas, you know, in, in something more like Dungeons and Dragons or Shadowrun, it's like you failed, you attempted, you did not succeed. Uh, in games like Apocalypse World, as we noted, I think last season when we were talking about it, um, a mixed success or like the like the degrees of success are less about success or failure and more about who gets to narrate, which I think serves that idea of this being a game that is fiction forward because it is explicitly like you're rolling dice to decide who gets to who finds out what, you know, who who guides what happens as opposed to explicitly like, yeah, success or failure. 
then the other end of that kind of spectrum, if that is an end of a spectrum, which we'll discuss later, uh, would be so-called crunchy games. I think one of the challenges of this discussion is that everybody talks about crunch in games a lot, um, but everybody, I think, has slightly different ideas of what that means. For me, a crunchy game is a game that uses a lot of very like detailed mechanics or dice rolls, but I don't think it has to be dice rolls to mediate the interactions between the GM and the players. So, you know, a lot of war games or dungeon crawling games um, are like this. Uh, and many of them also try to have very comprehensive rule books. You know, earlier I was talking about how Blades in the Dark leaves consequences undefined. In a crunchy game, you're more likely to find, you know, if you think about the old school D&D tables where it's like, did you fall? How far did you fall? Did you land in water, snow, or rock? Like, find the position on the table and like, here is how many hit points of damage you have taken. They tend to uh, define the nitty gritty in much greater detail. As someone who is much less well-versed uh, in in tabletop stuff than the two of you are, I remember encountering Crunchy in the wilds in tabletop discourse, and there was like no definition for it and no explanation what it was. I was just supposed to know. And I was like, the way I see Crunchy used in a derogatory term is like hippies in Colorado. <laughs> and I was like, is that what they're describing with it? Which is to say, I love hippies in Colorado. They're lovely people. But like, this is different. <laughs> yeah. I was just very confused. Um, and the fact that people kind of define it, but everyone defines it differently is also a hard thing to latch onto. I think the the definition that I usually go with when I'm talking about a game that is quote unquote crunchy is a game that is trying to simulate realism rather than accept the world of the game as its own thing with its own rules. So for example, like an example of a crunchy game that is not like D&D or Pathfinder, I would say a Shadowrun, which has like really, really, like if you look at like the rules for using guns in Shadowrun, like there are all of these different like recoil mechanics and like what angle are you shooting at? And like all of these things that you have to factor in in order to figure out your chance to hit and how much damage it does. The point of what you're doing in that game is you're trying to figure out like oh like if i in real life were like doing this thing how would how would that work and how would i simulate it and how do we replicate that in the space of a game so that's sort of how i go about thinking about things as crunchy versus fiction forward because if the point of a fiction forward game is to like weave a story together the priorities of that i think have less to do with like how do we how do we like figure out how this would actually happen and I think a lot of the reason people talk about crunch is like a, in a derogatory way is because like if you're like in a world where there's like magic and dragons and whatnot, like, I don't know, simulating realism isn't particularly interesting to me, at least. Um. Yeah. And I think because I, I, th I think I personally have a slightly different like t definition of crunch, which is I, t I tend to think of crunch as basically like you could say mechanical complexity, but I actually usually think of it as fiddly bits. Um, it's like a crunchy game is one that gives you lots of little things you can tweak to like mechanically affect the world in, in a like rules based way rather than just like, oh, now, you know, because I succeeded, I get to decide what happened, which is kind of like the PPTA model. You know, it gives you all these little things to tweak, which I think one reason people can be a little derogatory about crunch. And this is this is true 
in some games um, is that the game can become more about like mastering this like body of rules knowledge than mm-hmm. actually playing the game. You know, a lot of people say with first edition Pathfinder, for example, that, you know, success or failure at first edition Pathfinder happens when you pick out your characters like feats, mm-hmm. you know, not and has almost nothing that, that is hugely more influential than anything you choose to do at the table because it is such a like mathy game. I also think that some people find pleasure in having lots of fiddly bits to play with. So I'm a little I look askance at that as a quote unquote bad thing. But <laughs> totally. Another sort of thing I would love to toss into the ring before we turn to talk about blades more explicitly is this like a, a thing that I don't think is true of all quote unquote crunchy games, but a thing that I do see in games like D and Pathfinder is that I think a lot of times games that we might call crunchy are arbitrating a group of players interaction with the imagined world as opposed to a group of players interactions with each other if that makes mm-hmm. sense yeah um like uh, rules as written D does not really talk about inter-party role play at all like there is there is just that's a thing obviously you can do but i don't think rules as written it encourages you to do that um it's so much more about how you encounter the world around you so I feel like that's another sort of distinction that I notice. Yeah, that is a really good distinction. I don't know if that's crunchiness itself, but it is for some reason. It's they like go together somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I think that's a correlation causation thing. Blades in the Dark, which is a uh, powered by the Apocalypse game, has both like very crunchy aspects and very you know fiction forward aspects. Um, and so we were going to talk a little bit about how those two things live together. Yeah, some of the sort of specific mechanics in Blades in the Dark that you might call crunchy are that every time you roll a die, there are multiple moving parts that all sort of differently affect the way that that roll might happen. You have your position, you have the effect. There are all of these different ways of getting bonus dice. Like there are a lot of things to decide before you roll a die in this game. Yeah, there are also I I had a kind of galaxy brain moment in playing Blades in the Dark for the podcast when I was like, oh, my God, there are four experience trackers uh, in this game because you get experience that your abilities are grouped into three buckets. And every time you make a desperate roll on a skill, you get experience in its bucket. And when the bucket fills experience track fills up, you get to be better at one of the skills in that bucket and then separate. So there's those three, which are entirely separate. And then there's also the one that fills up at the end of every session, which gets you your playbook advancements and your kind of character driven um, special abilities. So that is, I just suddenly kind of realized how much I was keeping track of. And it felt much more complicated to me than like, Oh, I leveled up my character. Numbers go up. I get a new feat. Yeah. And you're also tracking harm and you're tracking stress and you're tracking all of Trauma. these. Yeah, you're, there are all of these different things in part, like all serving all of the different ways of getting bonus dice. But there are all of these different ways that you might that there. Yeah. In addition to experience, there are a whole bunch of other things you also have to keep track of. And like Dungeons and Dragons, um, there are also what I would call kind of derived stats, but they're hidden. So, for example, you have to make when you have to make a resistance roll to try to avoid harm, you are going to roll with one of those three buckets. And the number of dice you get, if I'm remembering correctly, is 
equal to how many skills you have any action dots in from within that bucket. This is not like obvious on the character sheet, really, but it is the kind of complex thing of like, oh, it is, you know, it may be worth getting a skill from the prowess bucket, even though I don't have anything else, because otherwise, if I ever have to resist anything with prowess, I'm going to be like really screwed. Mm -hmm. I just found that part of the rulebook also kind of counterintuitive with the example that they showed off. Well, I think part of it is that the rulebook is trying to encompass so many. They've set themselves up to talk about so many possible scenarios that it is, I think, actually extremely hard to be to offer an example that like fully communicates the thing. But yeah, uh, the last sort of mechanic that I would that I would call crunchy, but others perhaps might not uh, is progress clocks, um, which is essentially a mechanic where. I think it, I think it's really kind of used in two major ways, which is one, the GM might say, OK, like the guards are doing a patrol. And when the progress clock fills up, they come upon where the party currently is um, or the party might be like researching how to uh, bring people back from the dead. And you might have a progress clock that you're slowly filling up as you work on that in your downtime. Um, so that's sort of the two major ways that those manifest. And I would say that that mechanizes a narrative thing in a way that feels a little bit crunchy to me, but I don't know, Todd, what do you think? So what I think is like not crunchy about progress clocks is they're used to take these very abstract concepts and put them into play in a way that's not like a dice roll. So like from your example, Percy, like there isn't like if you do three resurrect from the dead saving throws, then you get X. It is instead a more abstract like, hey, you want to like, go deal with the spirit wardens and spend a day shadowing them. Cool. That could work. And so on. I very much agree with you. I think about, about that. I think that is a limit of the way that we use the word crunchy, because like, while I would say like this mechanizes a thing that is at its core narrative, games are also kind of unplayable if you don't have some things that are <laughs> measurable via mechanics. Well, but I guess my question is, isn't that what crunch is? mechanizing more and more detailed bits of narrative well i guess the hot the hot take that i would drop is that there is no game like in order for it to qualify as a game it has to have rules and the way that we use the word crunch just means it has a lot of rules so like i don't think anybody has like a uniform place where they're like okay this is what tips it over into having like too many rules some people like Shadowrun. I guess for me, what it is, is the like the example of the progress clock, I think is really cool because it covers all sorts of different situations without actually having to have like, these are the rules for resurrection. These are the rules for guards finding you. These are the rules for a chase. And instead, like condenses a lot of those things that could be very crunchy into one concept that is like very abstract and malleable. And to me, I guess, is more smooth or amorphous and not crunchy. Yeah, and what I will note from the handbook for Blades in the Dark in the way that like the way that he defines the game, he says no one is in charge of the story. The story is what happens as a result of the situation presented by the GM, the actions the characters take, the outcomes of the mechanics and the consequences that result, which I would argue is positioning the game as a conversation between the players and the GM, but he also does explicitly sort of invoke the mechanics, which I think is interesting and sort of like, I would argue offers us like a union of this like narrative forward philosophy with really, with a, with a lot of mechanics um, and things to keep track of. But I think they are all sort of serving what the game's mission is, which is to 
um, offer you a system where you are able to hop into a story and tell it um, without getting sort of hung up on preparation and planning. And yet, and this is me just like doing the thing where I trouble it one more time for fun. Um, it figures the game as a conversation, but I also remember, I think it's engagement roles. Specifically, he talks about like, we don't want to have to demand that the GM get it right every time. So we use the mechanics to essentially, he doesn't use this word, I don't think, but essentially abdicate the like responsibility so that you just make the die roll and then you know like what the starting position of the group is, which is interesting to be to me because I'm like, well, that's not a conversation then. That's like moving far the other direction compared to, say, one of the least crunchy games I've read recently, Wander Home, where everything is literally a conversation like in the default play mode. It's just a bunch of people sitting around being like, where do we want to go next? We could imagine a place like this and like literally talking it out together without practically any mechanics. There are mechanics, but they're like small and under the hood. What I would say about that is that like, for me speaking purely as like a, as a player, when I play like fiction first narrative forward games, particularly if I'm with a party, like a group of people that I don't know particularly well, there can sometimes be this like very weird lull of like nobody wants to commit to anything and everyone's like, oh, well, like maybe it's this and like maybe we could do this. And like it all, you're always sort of depending on somebody to jump in and say, like, here's my specific idea. <laughs> what do we think about it? Which is which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think maybe what Blades in the Dark is trying to do is to circumvent that by saying, OK, like this is what this is what it is. And I'm absolving everybody of having to make the decision of what it is. Um, so that we have no choice but to like already have a specific idea on the table that we're running with. So yeah, I think I think that's sort of where how I see that functioning. I remember we had a conversation last year about like role playing and mechanics and like why do we why are we always asking people to smooth talk a guard like IRL when we don't ask people to swing a sword IRL to determine if they get a bonus to their D twenty role. Just for and the I record, feel- I would I think that. I would love to write a game where you have to <laughs> you have to have a sword. <laughs> I mean, that would be that'd be fun. But but default, like, like most games, not how it works. But I, I feel like it's a little bit of that. And I, I do think there's an aversion to mechanics among the kind of narrative driven fiction first people who are often like very collaborative and very fun and so on. But I also think there's value in like here's a game where everybody can understand the rules and you don't have to be comfortable improvising like a scene in character to sit down and play because that's what mechanics do is give you that scaffolding. I wonder though if crunch, I guess the way that I feel it's used most around me is crunch is like when you need to have three books next to you that you might have to open at any moment to like page 235 to remember like, oh, when I use this ability, does it do this or does it do this other thing? And like, do I have 15 dice or do I do three? And I think that to me is like less fun because unless everybody has an encyclopedic knowledge of the game, like gameplay shuts down because it's like, I know what I want to do and I don't know how the system handles it. And so I think something like Blades that is trying to be fiction forward, although there are maybe too many roles that are different, like tries to tries to put everything on like a couple pages that you, the player, need to know in order to navigate the game. Well, but here's here's my just like gentle pushback on it. 
I felt more of a lack playing Blades in my own knowledge than in any like D20 game I've played. And I think it's not and and I want to be careful to be fair in this comparison because we've talked before about how John Harper has this like inverted pyramid of rules where like, you know, the kind of core thing of like you have playbooks and you are thieves, you cannot do away with, but you could play without the like gang, the crew mechanics, you could play without the factions. And we were trying to play with all of them. So I want to acknowledge that we were doing that at the same time in most like quote unquote crunchy games, you actually use an extremely small selection of the rules. You know, most of the time I have in my experience, a player like knows the rules like for how their character operates and does not know the random rules for like if you're lost in a snowstorm. How do you find your way out? They like look that up if they get into a snowstorm. But 99% of the time, it's like, I know how to swing my sword and jump really good and whatever, because that's what I do. Well, what I what I would say in response to to that is that there is a person who is supposed to have that encyclopedic knowledge in a D20 game, and it's the DM. There are many times as a DM that I am responsible for remembering which spell has really, really specific language about like a creature that you can see or like whatever and i think a thing that blades does that is really lovely is that i think it to some extent shares the load of knowledge between everybody at the table and i don't know that it does it entirely successfully because the gm is still sort of like refereeing but i do think like point point taken but i think there is a person in a d20 game who is responsible for knowing all of the things in in a way that like concentrates power in that person yeah, I guess I would just ask is do you think that's part of the game or do you think that's kind of part of the culture around D20 games? Because I've certainly heard of GMs who are like, I do not learn. It, I mean, it varies. Some of them are like combative GMs I would not want to emulate. Some of them I think are are pretty good GMs. But, you know, on both sides, I've heard GMs who are like, I do not learn my players mechanics because like the player characters are theirs and like it is their response, you know, for that example of like a spell that has like a really niche clause in it. I feel like there are some GMs who would say, if you want to cast that spell, it is your responsibility to like know what it does. Yeah. I mean, as a, in part because of the style of game that I run, which has just a lot of people, I'm very like upfront about like, I'm not going to remind you about the things that you can do. Um, only because like I'm one person, but yeah, I, I, I don't think that's how it is. I don't think that's how the game is written to be. Um, like, I, th- I think the game is written to be like the GM or the DM arbitrates all of these things because the DM is responsible for knowing the rules in a way that I think is less true in Blades in the Dark. Another, I think, factor in the like narrative philosophy of Blades in the Dark is the fact that like John Harper very explicitly defines it as episodes of a TV show, which to me feels like like an emphasis on narrative um but there's also an emphasis on formula that i think is like like i feel like where we're sort of approaching is this idea that like blades in the dark is sort of sitting in the in the middle and like i don't know as a non-binary person i don't like the binary of narrative and crunchy like let's just not have it um let's do away with it (laughs) hate binaries um but yeah i think it is interesting that like he is very specifically invoking this like narrative style that he is emulating um in the handbook 
I do think there's something useful to note about the way he describes the formula of the TV show as having like an A plot and maybe a B plot as a way to focus the players and the GM as well. Like it's not everyone is going off to have coffee with their own character that they want to talk to, um, which might happen in, let's say, a, a game of Dungeons and Dragons. And instead is like, cool, like we're focused on the heist. There might be another thing that's going on that we're like dealing with during the heist. But like, let's keep our eyes on the prize and keep going. Well, and I mean, that did happen like last season in our game of Apocalypse World. It took John John like multiple episodes to bring everybody, all four of us together in one place because that game in its emphasis on narrative explicitly encourages you to have separate scenes and split the party and do do different things. And it's sort of incumbent on everybody to like figure out how to weave your individual stuff together. Um, whereas, yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. In Blades in the Dark, like we're doing we're doing one thing. And because you're making the crew together, I think you are sort of from jump encouraged to like think of yourselves as a whole in addition to individuals. TV is a a linear art form in that it exists in time. And so is theater. And so are tabletop role playing games because they happen in time and human beings at least as far as I'm aware, only experience time in one direction. And partly because of that, I was really interested to note that I had a much harder time than I expected wrapping my head around the flashback mechanics and the kind of in and out and bopping back and forth of the game. I was super excited for that um, and I was really looking forward to it and I enjoyed you know, what we did with it, but I didn't. I, I struggled to do it a lot more than I expected because I'm so used to being presented with a situation and having to like work my way out of the situation with the tools that I like have. And I think it's a much bigger uh, mental switch than I was anticipating to say, oh, no, I can, you know, just look at my sheet and be like, I've taken zero stress. I can essentially do whatever I want to make up a reason why this already is solved um, or why I already have the unusual tools to solve this. Um, I don't need to, you know, come up with something on the fly with what Milos like has on his equipment list. Yeah, yeah it kind of feels like cheating. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It Initially, if you're not used to it, it initially feels kind of like cheating. I think it's really cool, though, because it's like very Ocean's Eleven. It's very like, oh, we already solved that. And it's it's exciting for everyone to learn that right now. It totally is. It's just it's demanding, I think, on a player who's not de demanding, not in a like bad way, just like it's a bigger shift than I anticipated when, you know, Elliot just throws a situation at us and having to like uh, come up with it it's if you have not played blades in the dark before i think it uh, you know it's it's a hard thing to wrap your head around i think we also i'll be curious to hear what people think as you know you've been listening to the actual play i think if anything the mechanics as written want us would have wanted us to do even less up front when i went back and looked at the 
at the rulebook, I was like, wow, John Harper really wants you to be like, okay, you've all made characters. Great. You're on a rooftop. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of you is dangling down to the window. Like, he's very aggressive. I mean, again, aggressive in a good way about like in media race, uh, you know, no, like, you know, don't plan. If you want to make a role to quote unquote gather information, which really just changes the engagement role, you can, but like, I think the the kind of platonic version of this game is even more stripped back in the like front matter and the planning than what we did. Um, yeah. Well, and I would argue that 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 is a point in the like fiction first category, because I feel like what that's doing is essentially guessing yeah, like first and foremost is the immediate story that you're telling and you can retroactively justify things in the in the moment. But also, yeah, it is it is not the way that we are taught to absorb and create stories. And I think it requires a level of creativity that, like, I know I'm not in the habit of accessing either. I think it's a specific pushback against the problem that we've actually talked about with D20 systems and trying to do stuff like this is that, like, um, often your party, when presented with a problem in, say, Dungeons and Dragons or Shadowrun, is going to game out like 50 different versions of how to deal with an encounter. Um, and then in the time it will actually take them to do the encounter, like the whole session will have been over. And it's like, we're going to spend two hours planning and 30 minutes executing. And instead, this says, like, dive in, let's do the work together. Yes, absolutely. And I'm going to throw throw in there because I do love that aspect of it. And yet we were talking earlier about fiction forward games being like character driven and so on. I think what I've realized one of the things that's tripping me up is that the flashback mechanic actually requires like distance. It requires you, the player, to play the game in a way that your character cannot. You know, the character... Mm can't invoke a flashback so if you're doing that kind of like stanislavski and actor thing where your impulse is like i am presented with a situation what would my character do in this situation like that's not actually how blades in the dark wants you to engage blades in the dark wants you the player to say how would my character have already solved this issue i think that's where like my brain kind of ran up against the the reefs of the flashback mechanic because I'm yeah. so used to diving in and being like, yes, this will happen in linear time. Like, my character knows pretty much what I know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, like, Brain Blast, Blaze in the Dark is asking you to operate on those two levels of player and character at the same time, but separately. In that you're doing a thing in the moment, but you are also, as a player, I think engaging with it on a on a different aerial view level, and that is super interesting. And is I it think, Brechtian? Oh. <laughs> oh, it might... Uh, I don't... I don't think it's... I don't know if it's really Brechtian. It's 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 not, but that's that would be extremely funny. But it's, yeah, like I, a, it's like vaguely there's a, gesturing there's a degree in that direction. Alien, there's a degree of alienation that it's asking you to enter the game with that I think is... is Remember, you're playing a game. Well, yeah, like yeah. I, I think I think like narrative, like fiction forward games are in a lot of ways, like embodying this sort of contradiction of like, oh, it's like all about the characters and it's all about the role play. But you are also like you have to be engaged in it in a sort of alienated way as a player because you are like also actively thinking about making a world or 
coming up with the way that you specifically are interacting in the world. Like if I'm having a conversation, if I'm playing, sorry, I keep talking about Lady Blackbird. I just played it recently. So it's on, on the, on the brain. But if I'm having a conversation with my character's first mate about like, oh, like, you know, when do we think that we met each other and when, um, you know, what is the nature of how we met and how did we get together and decide to start smuggling weapons together? Like that's us as players kind of having a conversation until we decide to tip it into role play. So I feel like, you know, there are, there are games that are like, I feel like it's not a game if you are just like talking in character and having mm. like an extended private improv show. Wait, is it not Brechtian, but rather Boalian? And that it does kind of remind me of forum theater in the like, you, d- you dive into role play and then you're like, oh, this thing has happened. Let's out of character discuss, you know, how you could like negotiate it. And then you're like, let's dive back into role play. I don't know. TTRPGs are applied theater confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> Our podcast has been justified. <laughs> That's it. Pack it up, everybody. Pack uh, it up. We're done. <laughs> we're, we're done. Um to sort of like pull it pull it back to our core question of the episode, which is this idea of the what I would argue is a false binary of mechanic like crunchy games versus narrative focused fiction first fiction forward to use Nick's newly coined term. I don't think I coined that. I think I read it somewhere and I'm just forgetting where um, to sort of come back to this, like what I would argue is a, is a false binary. I feel like there are some factors that might push a game in a certain direction, but I think because of the nature of what a TTRPG is, you can't have a game that doesn't have both elements. And I think like, I think every game is doing what it's doing for a specific reason. And ultimately, like, you can have a game whose intention is to be super narrative driven that is using really specific mechanics in a way that that serves that um, and vice versa as well. But I feel like there are, there are some elements that sort of influence which direction something might fall or how, why something might be rules light versus very crunchy or heavy on rules. Um, like, for example, any game that has like mech combat is probably going to feel pretty crunchy because there are just like so many moving parts. Well, and especially when you're customizing your mech in a million different ways. Yeah, that's what I mean when I talk about like fiddly bits. Because you could also do a totally cinematic, you know, I could imagine, I don't know if this exists, a Powered by the Apocalypse mech mech game where, you know, what you decide is your character's relationship. Well, you did. Here you go. Game designers, get your notebooks out. What you decide <laughs> is your character's relationship to the idea of being a mech pilot. And then you get to just describe what your mech looks like. But all of the combat is actually, you know, cinematic and kind of blades in the darky. Well, actually, there is a there is a mech powered by the apocalypse game and it's called Firebrands and it's by uh, Vince McGay Baker. Um, and Amazing. it is it is uh it's not like explicitly like mech combat, but it's in that world. Um, and it is, if I remember correctly, pretty rules light and is also like a framework that a lot of people borrow. Um, I think I'm going to say this for me and for no one else on this podcast. You're talking about a Gurren Login versus a Gundam in the mech world. Great. Sure. I made a really great shrugging. point. <laughs> shrug, shrug emoji. <laughs> Um, in one series, the mech's powers are all defined by the the fighting spirit of the pilots, and in another, they have weapons and modules and things. One hundred percent, yes, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I think like yeah. I'm not saying that every game with mechs has to be super crunchy, but I feel like any any game that has like 
a lot of really specific character possibilities. Whereas like, like a PBTA game has the playbooks, which all are pretty like contained. Whereas like in a DD or a Pathfinder or whatever, you have like a lot of different things that you can put together in a unique way. Like there are a lot more possibilities for the specific build of a character. So I think the more complicated that system gets, the crunchier a game is going to be just by its nature. I sort of, I think the other element that I, because like one of the ways that I've heard people talk about justifying the use of dice in TTRBGs is that dice are like the way to simulate randomness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think I would argue in a lot of like fiction first games, randomness doesn't matter as much. Like it's, it's more about playing to find out what happens as opposed to like simulating real life. Like we talked about earlier. So yeah, I think that's another sort of factor that I, that I notice. Um, and I also feel like dice and mechanics offer a sense of like objectivity or fairness that is that might be like feel more comfortable for some folks. Well, and it's reliable. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that if you, you know, roll above a certain number, you like will succeed or you won't succeed. There's no I don't know if it's fairness exactly, but like there is a rule rather than it all. I feel like objectivity feeling- is is a good word for it. What's our objectivity? objectivity? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 There's like our rules rather than just being like, you know, it's, uh, you got this role. So something good like you succeed. But what does that actually mean? What does that translate to? I kind of want to imagine what or like play what our our final fight from campaign one in D&D uh, would have been like if we were using something that was more fiction forward and more like mixed success. Um, like knowing that that fight was all on both sides, a lot of misses. And so we felt was kind of like a narrative letdown because it didn't have this like climactic excitement, like what that would look like in um, something like Apocalypse World or Blades in the Dark. I mean, speaking as the as the. DM, I feel like the actions of the player characters were all these really like beautiful cinematic, like narrating that would be really, really cool of like Gavin and Chadrick jump out the window and you see the other two coming and Kevin um, Sriracha incapacitates the monster. Like, like it would be so cool. I don't know. Yeah. Like there, like you can, I guess, make an argument that like that's probably closer to how it might have happened. But also like if the intention of the game is to tell a compelling narrative story, the mechanics let it down. I don't know which game first did this. It might be Apocalypse World, but I can't swear by that. But one of the great things about a lot of Powered by the Apocalypse games is the like the GM does not roll dice rule, which is what makes them so much more cinematic is that what was happening there was that not only were we failing, but our opponents were also failing, which meant that it was just a big pile of failure. Whereas in many PBTA games, you know, the players are the only people who roll dice. And if they fail, it's not just that they miss, but something bad happens. You know, yeah. so like in that situation, if Gavin charges the monster with a sword and only rolls a one, it's not just like, oh, you missed. It's like, OK, now the monster has grabbed you and is lowering you toward its gullet. What? And automatically that's like much more dramatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there is. There is. Yeah, that like it's not just a it's not just a yes or a no. It's a yes and or a no and. Yeah, but I also feel like there is a pitfall of like the opposite end of the spectrum as well. When a game is like just a conversation at one point, does it cease to be a game? 
Um, and I think the question of like, what is a game is like actually not a particularly useful question to answer. Um, but I do think there is a, there is a point where like, you are just like improvising with your friends and that's super cool. But there is a, there is a point where like, you're not engaging in a, in a game anymore. Yeah. I, I love improvising with friends. I also sometimes do it like as work. And so just speaking from a purely personal perspective, like when I go to play a tabletop role playing game, I want a certain amount of crunch because I mean, I don't know if it's even really because, but like, so that is something different from sitting in a rehearsal room devising a show together. Like, I don't well, want it takes it takes some creative pressure off because yeah. like mm-hmm. I don't I'm not no one. No one has to be like, here's I have an idea nine times out of 10. There are plenty of ideas on the table and you just have to choose one. And it, yeah, is is less, I think, creatively taxing if there is like something to fall back on um, as opposed to just like a totally open. Yeah. In other words, make a crunchy peanut butter and jelly sandwich that is rules and fiction forward all in one and just. Go out there and take a bite, kids. Does that mean that that narrative narrative is jelly? Yes, particularly yes. raspberry. <laughs> <laughs> Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertaldeen. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at dndramanerds. Check out our cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Our city is much like yours. Skyscrapers reaching towards the clouds, trains roaring on subway tracks, people bustling through their lives. But there is one major difference. I think I'm just going to run at him. Yeah, 10, 12 tendrils of flame just burst out of my chest at the guy. I figured we already established I don't care if you're a hero. I'm not even really sure if I'm a hero. Clara punches him in the face. But I need you to be heroes in your own right. Moon Harbor is an epicenter of powered individuals. From villains to heroes to everything in between, these super beings strive to shape the world for better or for worse. And often caught in the crossfire are the teenagers and young adults who try to balance their heroic identities with their mundane lives. This is supposed to be fun. We will gab, we will share some secrets, but like, no pressure. Yeah, I'm totally kissing him. (laughs) (laughs) And this panel absolutely needs to be like sparks flying everywhere. Make it cheesy. These are the stories of the young heroes of our city. From flights over busy streets to the farthest reaches of space, Moon Harbor Heroes and our spinoff line, Moon Harbor Extended, are Masks, a new generation actual play podcasts that explore the intersection of responsibility to the world versus responsibility to oneself. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts or on Twitter at Moon Harbor Cast.